You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for February 2016. Today's episode is titled Business and the Kingdom of God. Wise management recognizes that excellent organizational performance is rooted in sound spiritual reality operative in both the culture of the organization and in the heart of each stakeholder. Sound theology is required to overcome the impact of sin organizationally and individually and to facilitate alignment with the goodness of God. Failure to walk in this truth will lead to individual and organizational dysfunction and inefficiency. Therefore, management must hire the right people, those who will proactively embrace sound theology and therefore will display traits of humility, submission, and teachability. Management must also provide a learning culture that facilitates sound spiritual reality in the heart of each stakeholder as a predicate for overcoming sin and enabling the delivery of excellent products and services. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Business and the Kingdom. Well, today we want to talk about business and the kingdom, specifically business and the kingdom of God. And let's start by talking about the authority for business. On what basis do do we conduct business? And as I consider this question, the thing that I'm drawn to is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, where God specifically explains the purpose for which he made mankind. So I'm going to read uh, this text, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. This is part of the creation story. It reads in the King James Version, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let, <clears throat> and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So here we have a very clear word from God regarding why we exist. Arguably, mankind should view this as the Great Commission. This is the commission from God, a commission is something where it's always a delegation from an authority figure to a subordinate about a direction and guidance about what they should do. So this is how we should live. We should live under this great commission from God. We have been delegated authority by God to rule his physical creation. So this word here in Genesis 1.26 that's translated dominion is the Hebrew word radah, which means rule or subjugate, or actually dominate. Now, dominate kind of has a negative connotation to us, but it's really about bringing forth a orderly rule according to the will and ways of God of all of his creation. So mankind should be always seeking alignment with God, and which means mankind should be seeking what God's will is and what are his ways. We should be seeking to understand what is right from God's perspective and what is wrong from God's perspective. So ruling is very much an ethical matter. It requires ethical reflection, ethical considerations in every area of life. And so the text then tells us this is a comprehensive rule. 
It's over everything, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth. Everything on this earth should be under the rule of mankind. It's our job to exercise our delegated authority and bring alignment with the will and ways of God. God created the universe, and he He basically uh, put a garden in it that reflected what he wanted the whole planet to be like, and then he charged man to go and take what I did in the garden and expand it, grow it out. And the garden was the ideal context, the perfect context. And for us to be able to do that, there are a lot of implications. Number one is the garden was fairly small, even though the description of it sounds fairly large. In the context of the world, it still was fairly small. The garden could have been, you know, tens or even hundreds of miles, uh, you know, in circumference or in diameter, or, you know, as a square, we don't know those details, but it could have been fairly large in one sense, but in relative to the whole earth, it's still very small. And so there were a number of things that were going to have to happen for us to be able to obey this in an unfallen state. And that is we had to be able to multiply. We needed more people. You know, Adam and Eve wouldn't be able to do this by themselves. They needed more people. So there would be a need for generational transfer. So people to be born and charged with the same commission that Adam and Eve had, and that is to rule creation. And we're told to subdue it. Furthermore, subdue here is the word kibosh. And in English, we use the word kibosh, meaning we, we have, uh, we've dominated something or someone and we've exercised our rulership over them. Well, literally, it, it makes, it means to make subservient and it implies something of technological advancement. We make, we bring an understanding of God's creation under our control to enable us to more effectively do what we're doing. So as, as we expand the garden, we're going to have to be able to communicate. As we expand the garden, we're going to need to be able to, to transport, you know, products and services and people to various places. As we expand the garden, we need to waste more efficient ways to farm, more efficient ways to do things. You can see we need technology is a big part of us being able to obey this mandate. So implicit in the mandate here is a mandate for technological advancement. At the same time, we are to exercise dominion everywhere we go and in every sense as we expand the universe or expand the rule and reign of God through his earth. Now, this was a wonderful picture in a unfallen state. But we all know what happened in Genesis chapter 3, shortly after creation, and we don't know what the time frame was, but it was before Adam and Eve had children. There was a problem, and that problem was Adam and Eve decided that God was withholding something from them, something that was good. And they they believed that the that the entitlement to decide what was right and wrong should be theirs as well. It should not be limited to the creator. And so they thought they could take matters in their own hands and actually begin to function like God. So they rebelled. And they rebelled. Basically, rebellion is over who gets to define the ethical standards, who gets to define right and wrong in the created order. So this was Adam and Eve's attempt to self-commission. They were trying to self-commission themselves as God, as an equal to God, And, of course, God did not tolerate that at all. His justice would not allow it, and so they were rebuffed. 
So now there are consequences for their sin, their rebellion. And that consequences is first and foremost going to be spiritual death and secondly, physical death. And now lots of implications from that. So mankind now must still seek to be obedient to the creation mandate, which is the great commission to rule God's creation. But they're in a spiritual state of deadness. And now what does that look like? Well, we get a picture of some of the implications of being in a fallen world with a mandate to rule God's creation. But we've got now a lot of limitations. So let's read Genesis 3, verse 21, and get a sense of these limitations. Then then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. And let me just remind you that Eve was deceived, but Adam was not deceived. And that's what Scripture tells us. Apostle Paul tells us that in New Testament. And so Adam was held responsible here. He, furthermore, was the head. He was the one that's... You know, the head of a family is the one that has responsibility for the family. We think of the head as the one who has the authority. Well, that is true, but I think a better way to think about it is you have responsibility first, and because God gave you responsibility, he will give you authority. But the authority is there to serve your responsibility. And so we get that kind of upside down. We get all focused on I'm in charge. No, we need to get focused on I'm responsible. So Adam is responsible, and he's going to bear the the brunt of this. So uh, then to Adam he said, so this is the consequence, the judgment for your sin, Adam. God is going to lay this out, and it's going to be all about how it's going to be more difficult for you to do what I put you here to do because you sinned. In other words, God gave them a perfect environment to do what they were called to do. Everything they needed was there. It was so pleasant and easy. They didn't need clothes. They didn't need shelter. It was a perfect environment for them to carry on what their calling was. But now that you have sinned, your environment is going to be touched. You are going to be touched. Everything will be touched by the implication and consequences of sin. So he said, then to said, then to Adam he said, because you've heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. Now, he did not say work is a curse. That's what many people, you know, think when they read this. It's not saying that. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In other words, the ground represents the context of work. And it's saying that the context of our work, our ability to rule God's creation, is going to be impacted now with a curse. In toil, you shall eat of it, that is, eat of the ground, all the days of your life. Now, the word toil here means in pain, labor, hardship, and sorrow. It's going to be difficult. You see, in the pre-fallen state, you know, work was was very pleasant and easy, easy and comfortable. Everything worked well. But now things are not going to work as well. They're going to be much more difficult. All the days of your life, you're going to toil. Then he says, both thorns and and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. Now, this I find very interesting because this suggests difficulties. Thorns and thistles to a farmer get in the way of him productively producing a crop. And I think that's he's using the, 
the metaphor of farming because that was the most foundational work for any human being to do. You have to farm to produce the food to sustain life. So that you could say farming is the foundational work for everything. If you don't have farmers, you don't have any other work. You have to have farmers to have all the other work activities. So the people that, that run a business, they're totally dependent upon farmers. So farming is the seminal work, if you could say that. So here, using that concept and that picture of farming, you have thorns and thistles, which means difficulties in doing farming. An implication of that is this is when the second law of thermodynamics actually came into existence. I am not persuaded. I can't prove this from Scripture, but I don't think the second law of thermodynamics was was created at creation. It was a consequence of the fall. And what the second law of thermodynamics says, very briefly, is that in any given closed system, that is a system that's not isolating with uh, uh, interacting with any other systems, over time, the usable energy in that system is declining. It doesn't matter what's going on, it will decline, which means that as it declines, the the amount of unusable energy is increasing. And the term that's used to refer to unusable energy is the term entropy. So entropy is always increasing in any kind of closed system. And that's indeed what seems to be happening. So we have a, a universe that is bound up with this law of second law of thermodynamics. Now let me give an example, a simple example of this. Suppose that you had a glass of water and in the water some ice. And what you notice about this, at least as far as I know, there's no exception to what I'm getting ready to tell you. What happens when you have ice in the water, the ice is always 32 degrees or colder. That has to be that temperature to be ice. And the liquid has got to be higher in temperature than 32 degrees. So what happens is the ice tends to pull the temperature of the liquid down, and the liquid tends to pull the temperature of the ice up, which melts the ice. And so over time, the ice melts, and you have only liquid. Now, that's an example of the second law of thermodynamics, because when you have ice in a liquid, you have the potential for work. You have the molecular bonds in the ice breaking down, and you have the temperature of the water which is represented by molecular motion slowing down. You have work going on to change the state of the 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 ice-liquid combination. Now, what's interesting and what the early scientists observed is they could not find a situation where the opposite was going on, where actually the ice was growing and the temperature of the liquid it was actually going up as the as its energy is extracted. And the ice is actually growing, and so eventually you have basically all ice. That didn't happen. There's no way that happened. That would be taking a lot. Of, that would be reversing the energy process, and there's no way that we know to do that. So they saw a bias in the universe toward usable energy being depleted in any closed system. So that's what the second law of thermodynamics says. It's a very, it's a kind of an abstract idea, but if you spend some time thinking about it, I think you can see what it's saying here. It manifests through things like production errors. 
It manifests through mistakes. It manifests through defects. We even have sayings like Murphy's Law. If it can go wrong, it will go wrong. These are all manifestations of the difficulties, the thorns and thistles that the workplace is bearing. So what we have here now, because of sin, is we have a workplace that's going to be inherently challenging for us to do productive work in. It shall bring forth for you now, and you shall eat the herbs of the field. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So the sweat of your face seems to suggest climate changes. Now you have to have clothes and shelter. In the pre-fallen states, you didn't have to have that. Now you will have to do that. Work will be a lot harder for you because now you've got to deal with, you know, clothing and shelter issues as well. The ability to efficiently do things will be impaired because you've got to slow down and deal with these other things. And you will eventually return to the ground, which means physical death will be a reality. In the pre-fallen state, there wasn't physical death. There was not spiritual death. They were alive spiritually and had no limit to their life. And so what you have here is the reality that now physical and spiritual death have come upon mankind, and that has impacted our ability to fulfill the creation mandate well. So this is a, this is a challenging thing for all of us. We now live in a world that's been cursed. Again, work is not a curse, but the context in which we work is cursed, and so now we have to deal with those consequences and those that those realities as we go about our workday assignments. Now, there's a solution to all this. We should not take despair in this. There is a solution. The solution to the problem of sin and death and all the consequences of sin and death is the transforming power of Christ. Then Jesus said to the Jews and who believed him, If you abide in my words, you are my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is a great principle for running an organization. If you want to build any kind of organization, I don't care what it is. It can be any kind of business, any kind of what we call nonprofits, which I think is a great misnomer, but we nevertheless have these what we call voluntary organizations, like, like a local Christian community we might call a church. They all are subject to these same principles. If you want the truth, and the truth is about what is right, and we want to live with what is right because all what the consequences of sin are is man keeps trying to step into God's shoes and define right, and that is that will never work. Only God gets to define it. So if we want to, you know, learn God's definitions of what is right, we have to first obey the revelation God has given us, and when we obey that revelation, it validates that we are disciples of Christ. And disciples of Christ, true disciples of Christ, not pseudo-disciples, real disciples of Christ who are really obeying the will and ways of God, they then are given truth. And the truth will set you free from the consequences of sin and death. It gives you a way to master sin and death. So this is the way forward in building organizations. You build on disciples. Now, this is a very, very challenging truth, and it's one that most of us don't don't really get, and most of the Christian world would rebuff this because they've had very bad experiences trying to build anything with professing Christians. But the reality is that the way we build correctly always must be aligned with God's definition of right and his rejection of things that he defines are wrong. 
And so only can, when we do that well, will we be able then to, to realize and build organizations that align with him and serve his purposes. So what then is the purpose of business for redeem mankind? Obviously, redeem mankind is, you know, is to organize into businesses or organizations to fulfill the creation mandate. There are tools to enable us to do that. But what is it that that organization is supposed to do? The common answer today is things like the greater good or common good. That's what organizations exist for. Most people talk about creating jobs and creating wealth and those kinds of things, but that's really not a profound answer for why business exists. What is business in the kingdom of God? What is it? How does it connect with the kingdom of God? Well, I think scripture gives us a very, very clear revelation on that point. So we can look at James chapter four, verses 13 through 17 and see very quickly that we have one purpose in business, one purpose alone, and that is to discern the will of God and align with his will. This makes business a very spiritual activity. It's as spiritual as anything you're going to do. It is a holy activity. We're told in Colossians 3 that we are to actually conduct business in the fear of God. Well, in the fear of God was an Old Testament term that spoke of a, a relationship with God, with knowing God, with walking with God, with being wise. That was a, it was like a term today we might call that religious, although I don't like that terminology. It's common. It's a person who's really spiritually minded, seeking the will and ways of God. And so this tells us that business, in fact, any organization, and an organization is two or more people who have come together to accomplish a mission, any organization should be about the same thing. And that is discerning the will of God for that organization in the context of, of obey, obedience to the creation mandate. So here's what he says in James 4, 13 through 17. Come now, you who say. So he's given us an imperative. You know, come now, says now, listen up. I'm going to give you some truth here. Today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, make a profit. We call that a business plan. So as we are conducting business, we always come up with, okay, we're going to go someplace, we're going to do something, and we're going to make a bunch of money. That's what we always say. Even the nonprofit world says that. In fact, the nonprofit world is a misnomer because you cannot, there's no such thing as a nonprofit. A nonprofit has to be profitable to exist. So we have a lot of misunderstandings about that. So I'm going to call it a voluntary organization as opposed to an organization that would be, you know, a business organization. So all organizations are called to make a profit. So we have to have a plan to do that. And that plan is, you know, that plan has to be developed properly. So here's how he tells you to develop the plan. He says, first of all, you have to have a very humble attitude. He says specifically, where do you, whatever, whereas you do not know what or will happen tomorrow, what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, very humbly, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. If the Lord wills, I will help people invest their assets wisely. If the Lord wills, I will help you, guide you into what it is you're supposed to do in your organization as a consultant or a coach. If the Lord wills, I will help you buy the right product you need to solve your manufacturing problem. If the Lord wills, I will help you find 
the right supplements that you need to nourish your body so that you can live and do what God has called you to do in alignment with his will and his ways. You see, we've got to begin to really think it's all about his will. And when we don't make it about his will, then what we are is in pride, and God opposes the proud. He goes on to say, but now you boast in your arrogance. That's called pride. All such boasting, all such pride is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good, and to do good good here is to align with the will and ways of God, and you don't do it, let's be clear, it's sin. It is sin. And see, this is a startling thing. I, I find in the workplace, for example, the idea of sin is just not even discussed. I mean, when you bring up sin in the workplace, people look at you cross-eyed like, what are you talking about? We don't talk about sin in the worst place because we don't think biblically about the workplace. We haven't understood the role of business and the kingdom. The role of business is a tool to, to facilitate the creation mandate, the purpose of of mankind as defined by God in helping God establish his kingdom on earth. That's what it's all about. So getting that is a huge, huge lesson in life. It will transform how you live and how you conduct business, and ultimately it gives you the definition of success. The real definition of success is obedience to the purpose of God. The chief purpose of business is to do the will of God according to the ways of God. John 17, 4 is a great example. When Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 4 is articulating now the, you know, the end of his life, he says, Father, I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. I've completed. I've done what you put me here to do. Each one of us has a work assignment. Our job is to glorify God in doing it. And the only way we do that is to align with his will and his ways knowing that we are aligning and serving our role in the creation mandate, part of the meta narrative of God to establish his kingdom on earth. So that's the challenge. Can we learn to live that way? And let me just give you some quick bullet points as we close here about how to begin to think about business or organizational behavior in the kingdom. We have to know that to obey God in, the, in any organization, we have to discern the role of the organization in the meta narrative, in what God is doing, his big picture of history. We have to recognize, we have to focus on serving those whom the organization is called to serve. Don't presume you're called to serve everyone. Seek to discern whom you're called to serve. Focus on spiritual wealth first and secondarily tangible wealth. Very challenging for us because the default for all of us is think about the money. We have to learn to think about spiritual wealth first and secondarily tangible wealth. In fact, tangible wealth flows from spiritual wealth. We have to learn to hire the right people. And I like the C4 principle. I think it's a powerful principle to guide us into hiring the right people for the organization. And finally, we have to commission those called to the organization to fulfill the purpose of God for their lives personally in the context of the organization, and then that facilitates the organization fulfilling its purpose. So the eternal value of business is measured by faithful stewardship. As we learn to live according to the will and ways of God, to line up with him, what we're working toward is the realization that one day we will all stand before the Lord and give an account of what we've done in the flesh. Now this, for those who know Christ, 
This does not determine your eternal state, but it does determine your rewards. And we don't know a whole lot about the rewards, but we do know something about it. And we know this, that we will give an account, and what we do here is important, and it, it does count for eternity. And so an example of this is Luke 19, 17, where it says, Well done, good and faithful servant, because you are faithful in a little. And a little was faithfully stewarding the time, talent, and treasure that that steward had been given and producing a profit. That's what God wants, a profit that he values. So we have to learn how to produce profit that he values. As we do that, we will be obeying the creation mandate, which enables us then to fulfill our role in the kingdom of God, the great story of history that is all about Christ and will culminate ultimately in the final judgment and a new creation. And those of us who know Christ, and we've manifested by virtue of our obedience that we know Christ, will enjoy eternal life with him. And what we've done in this life will in some way determine the the exact nature of our state in the next existence. So that's a big picture perspective of business or organizational behavior and the kingdom. May the Lord give us all grace to learn to walk faithfully, biblically in every organization. May it line up with him and may it bring glory to him and may it always honor him in all that we think and everything that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.